Okay, so let's read um, John chapter 11, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 16, which is about half of the story that we're going to cover today. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, and the village of Mary and Martha, and his sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead in death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And after saying these things, uh, he said to them, "Our Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And the disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant that he was resting in sleep. And then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. (laughs) Now let's back up to verse one. This is a great this is such a beautiful um, picture of life and death. And honestly, in the midst of our world today and so much fearfulness, um, there, there is going to be a message in this for each of us. Um, let's go to verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and his sister Martha. Now this is the first time we hear of Bethany. Bethany was basically a suburb of Jerusalem. It was two miles southeast. And um, Luke 10 has already told the story of Jesus visiting the home of Mary and Martha. You know, Mary was very, I mean, Martha was very busy and Mary was sitting at Jesus's feet. Honestly, the, the synoptics or the Matthew, Mark and Luke have been written for over 25 years when John is writing this. So he's telling us who these people are because they're, first of all, there's like five Marys in the New Testament. So he wants to explain who this exactly, who these people are. So it says in verse two, it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent for him saying, Lord, Lord, the one you love is ill. So um, this is uh, Mary basically saying to Jesus, you know, we know that you want to know that he's sick because we know, and they had tremendous faith that you, you know, that he, you love him and And the next thought in their mind was that Jesus was going to drop everything and come over there and heal him. Um, And sometimes God does exactly what we expect. But ladies, (laughs) not always. (laughs) So um, it says in verse 4 and 5, But when Jesus heard, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified. Now Jesus loved Martha and his sister and Lazarus. So he stays two days longer. So first of all, Jesus's response to this message of his sickness is that this is going to be for the glory of God. So right now he's saying to them, this is a bit, there's a bigger story about to happen. He said the same thing to the blind beggar. This was about for the glory of God. This, um, okay. The glory of God was to be demonstrated in the raising of Lazarus from death. 
so that while the illness resulted in temporary death, it resulted more impressively in resurrection and life. So he, so Jesus stays two more days. Now you have to know, if you know anything about reading through John, and you guys have been good about this, is that Jesus is not on anybody's time schedule except the Father's. <laughs> um, and uh, Alfred writes, I have a fixed time during which to work appointed by my Father. During that time, I feel no danger. I walk in the light, even as a traveler in the light of this world by the day. So he is not moving any faster because of Lazarus' illnesses, because basically he has a divine plan. And he's about to clue them into it. But ladies, I want you to know so many times we are like Mary and Martha. We're like, wait a minute, this is not going. God should have done X, Y, or Z. And God, we have to realize, does what God wants. And God's God's will is always going to be for our betterment, but we have to sometimes wait for it. So uh, 7 through 10, I love the response of the disciples. Um, So he says to the disciples, let's go to Judea, because they've been hiding out now, um, away from all of the Judaizers and the scribes and the Pharisees. And the disciples say to him, Rabbi, the Jews who are now seeking to stone you, um, why are we going there again? And Jesus said, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the night, the light is not in him. So Jesus is, Jesus says, we're going to go. And I love, my favorite thing is what, um, my little friend, uh, I guess it's Thomas says, okay. Um, uh, he says, well, we might as well just go and we'll just die with him. Um, and, uh, but I wanted to back up for a second and just talk about for a second that I think a lot of times we spend a lot of our Christian time and efforts and energy trying to get God on our time schedule. (laughs) And I just want to say that that's probably not going to happen. And it didn't happen in Jesus's day and it's not going to happen in our day. Really, what we should be doing is try to figure out what his time schedule is. Um, so how does Jesus reckon time? Jesus has a job to complete for his father. He's got a mission. Everything, even time, falls in line with what he must do. Jesus never hurried. He never rushed. And he was always on time. So um, he said to them in verse 11 through 13 after saying these things he said to them our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep and I go to awaken him and they say oh if he's sleeping well he's fine Um, but Jesus had spoken of his death and they thought he meant that he was really sleeping and just saying that it's a very common Christian euphemism sleep for death Um, Stephen's martyrdom he felt we say he fell asleep Jairus's daughter was asleep when she was in fact dead um, so John eleven fourteen through 16, Jesus has to speak very plainly to them. Je- Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I'm glad I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, says to his fellows, let us go also, that we may die with him. I just love Thomas, because Thomas is honest and transparent, and that's what I love about him. Um, so he basically, one of my commentators says, this was not expectant faith, but rather loyal despair. He's like, okay, he's going, we'll all go with him. 
Um, so he goes, so they start to travel in verses 17 through 27. If you get your Bible, so I'm going to read that part for you. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus has already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And so the Jews had come to Mary and Martha to console them during concerning their brother. So when Mary, Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Okay, so let's just back up. Let me tell you a little bit about Jewish um, grieving. It was customary to bury the deceased the day of their death because they didn't have any kind of embalming. Barclay writes that in Jewish mourning, the deep mourning lasted seven days in which the first three were days of just weeping. During the seven days, it was forbidden to anoint yourself, to put on shoes, to engage in any kind of study or business, and even to wash. The week of deep mourning was followed by 30 days of lighter mourning. And it was considered a sacred duty by Jews to come and express loving sympathy to the bereaved. So there was a whole lot of people that came the two miles from um, Jerusalem to come and grieve with these sisters. And this was no, um, this was what God had planned because honestly, this was God's greatest miracle and Jesus's greatest miracle. And he wanted a whole lot of people to see it. So to give them the opportunity, like he's been saying through his whole three years of ministry, I want you to come and believe. So, um, John MacArthur writes, it's so many Jews came from the capital to console them, and it suggests that the family was prominent, probably wealthy. Um, from the human perspective, they were, the mourners were there to comfort the sisters in their loss, but for God's perspective, they were there to witness Jesus' stunning miracle. Um, F.F. Bruce writes, the portrayal of the two sisters' character and temperament in the gospel agrees with Luke's record, Mary sits at Jesus' feet while Martha is busy engaged in heart, uh, housework. Martha runs out to greet him. Mary is staying here. So Mar Martha said to Jesus, If you had been here, Lord, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, he will give you. Martha here is, is using the language of faith. Um, if Jesus had been in there in time, Jesus, Lazarus would not have died. This is not a complaint. It's an, really an expression of her faith. She knew that if he was there, he would not have died. Um, I just have to tell you, and I want you to warm up to this fact, that this whole miracle is really a foreshadowing of Jesus' own death and resurrection. And he's going to tell us some things here that are so significant, and, it, and it's going to hit the uh, disciples kind of like a two by four over their head at the Jesus's resurrection. But a lot of this, they don't get until after then. 
Um, The death of Lazarus with its impending sequel of resurrection is to be a paradigm of the grant of eternal life to all believers in Jesus. In the discourse following um, the healing of the cripple, Jesus claimed to have authority given to him by the Father, not only to recall to resurrection on the coming day those who lie in their tombs, but right now here and there to give life to the dead who hear the voice of God. And that's in John chapter 5. So there is, a, um, and also there's a further reference to this twofold um, aspect of raising of the dead. Now Jesus is not only the one who affects the resurrection and bestows life to Lazarus, but he's also himself the resurrection and the life. So just like in the Copernicum discourse when Jesus said, I am the bread, he's also, the, he's the gift and the giver. And the same here. He is the resurrection and he's not just going to resurrect. He is the resurrection. Um, So H. Dodd says he has made it. um, I am the resurrection. And later he elucidates. I am the life. Um, I am the resurrection. He who has faith in me, even though he dies, will live again. I am the life. He who is alive and has faith in me will never die. The believer in Jesus who undergoes physical death will nevertheless live. This is more than an announcement of the general resurrection on the last day. This looks forward to Jesus' own rising from the dead and affirms that believers in him, being united by him by faith, will share in this risen life even though they experience bodily death. Um, more than that, so far as in sharing his risen life, the possession of eternal life is concerned. It's a life that knows no death. Jesus has started, this is, we've read this, so this is familiar to us, but what Jesus was saying to these men was all new. Um, there was great confusion among the Jewish scholars about what death was. Half of them believed there was going to be a resurrection And the other half, like the Pharisees believed that, and the Sadducees did not believe there was anything after death. There was no resurrection. And that's why they were sad, you see. Um, But mortal life must come to an end. And after that, there's life. There's indeed life that lasts forever. And Jesus is now just starting to talk about this. So in verse 23, Martha mistakes Christ for speaking of Lazarus, is speaking of Lazarus, ultimate resurrection on that day um so jesus has to correct her (laughs) martha the resurrection is no longer a when he's telling her but a who and it's me it has not been moved from the future it has been moved from the future now to the domain of the present so what does this mean what does this mean to us there's a couple of really important things that i want us to get Um, First of all, number one, Jesus is not just thinking in terms of physical life. He's not just saying literally because it doesn't make sense if he says if it's just literally. Um, Because if he's speaking physically, it's not true that a man who believes will never die because we know people die. Um, But he's again, and like he's been doing all through John, trying to catapult them into spiritual thinking. So Jesus is thinking spiritually here, and he's thinking of death, of the death of sin itself. Now, he's, let me just say that there's this 
incredible death and sin are inextricably tied together in the New Testament. Actually, they're tied together in the Old Testament because when Adam sinned, God's warning was then the day you sin is the day that you die. And Adam didn't die that day, but he was separated from God that day. And that was his spiritual death. So um, he's talking about spiritual death here. Sin has separated us from God. The wages of sin is death. We know this. 2 Timothy 1.10 says that Jesus Christ, who had destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, in canceling the power of sin, Jesus has abolished sin's consequence, i.e. death. He's, uh, he's, he's, he's done that, and I'm going to read you a couple of really good passages, which I hope later on you read through by yourself. Ephesians 2, 1 through 6. Listen to the tie between de- sin and death because it's, it's there. You'll see it. And it says in Ephesians 2, 1 through 6. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now work in the sons of disobedience, among whom... We all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And actually, when we studied Ephesians, that word is that we get the word um, synced from this word. We were synced in his death, we're synced in his resurrection, and we're also synced as we're seated, spiritually speaking, in the heavenlies with Christ. Um, Colossians 2, 12 through 15 says, Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith, in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all of us our trespasses, and by canceling the record of death that stood against him with the legal demands, he set it aside, he nailed it to the cross, and he disarmed the rulers and the authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them. So Jesus here, this is a foreshadowing of what Jesus is about to do in a week and a half or two weeks time on the cross. I want you to realize that this is so important because I think that um, the fact that Jesus is alive, you know, whereas all the other world religions, you can find the grave of these people. Jesus has no grave because Jesus is alive. But more than that, because he's alive, he's giving us a new life. And um, he's just not giving us a new set of rules. He's giving us a new life. The, uh, Romans 6, 3 through 10 really explains this the best. And I want you to listen carefully. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? See, th- again, we are to be with him in death, burial, and resurrection. Verse 4, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So you are a new creation. For if we have been united with him in death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in the resurrection like his. 
We know that the old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we've died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. And we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. And I I really want you to understand that this is kind of where John is going to be going. And so he's just foreshadowing all of this. Um, But I want you to also realize that the third point, well, the first point was that Jesus is not just thinking of physical life. Jesus' second point is thinking about the death of sin. It's a spiritual concept. And then the third point is Jesus was not only thinking of the life of this life, he's thinking about the life to come. See, he brought um, to life the certainty that death was not the end. And as believers, that's very commonplace. We hear that a lot. But this was a, a brand new thought for uh, to be taught with such authority to the Jews of that day. Um, Wearsby writes, The Old Testament revelation about death and resurrection is not clear and, or complete. It's like it's in the shadows. He brought the doctrine of resurrection out of the shadows and into the light. Jesus said to the thief, Today you will be with me in paradise. Um, And Paul says, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Now, this is a huge thought for us because um, in this world, especially with the pandemic going, there is so much fear. Um, And we have to understand what God really says about death and resurrection. Um, Jesus says to, to Martha, do you believe this? Spurgeon writes, those who believe in Christ Jesus appear to die, but they live. They are not in the grave, they are forever with the Lord. They are not unconscious, they are with their Lord in paradise. Death cannot kill a believer, it can only usher him into a freer form of life. Um, Let me just say that this is a truth that I think we all know in our heads, but the fact is that we worry. And we, our anxiety really shows our lack of trust in this fact that death is not the end and Jesus has got every day of our life um, planned out until the very end, till our job is done. Um, Lenski writes, to believe is to receive, hold, and enjoy the reality and the power of it and all that lies in it of joy, comfort, peace, and hope. This is what it really means when he says to believe. Do you believe this? Do you, can you rest in this? Do you have peace in this? Do you have hope in this? Um, MacArthur writes, the measure of our believing, um, the resurrection and the life, is the measure really of our enjoyment of it. Interesting. So in verse uh, 1127, uh, Martha says, and I love this because this is completely a, a great gal statement. She says, I assuredly believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, and the one that has come into the world. Did Martha believe what he told her? He, she would accept it by faith, but she could not understand it any more than any disciple could understand it before he rose from the dead. But asked about her faith, she confessed her faith in the person who was speaking to her. He, she looked at Jesus and said, you're the good shepherd. I, I'm, I'm going with you. 
I don't understand it, but I'm going with you. Um, like Andrew, she confessed him as the Messiah, which we remember in John 1 night. Let Nathaniel confessed him as the son of God. And he was, she was, um, uh, the, the actual verb tense, this is one of the pisteo words that John uses 98 times, the theme of John. But it's in actually the perfect tense, um, which basically translates, um, I have come to believe. Or she means, and now, as a settled attitude of soul, I believe. So in her mind, she is 100% relying and have confidence in what Jesus is saying. So then the narrative continues in verses 28 through 32 in John 11. When she said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and he's calling for you. And when she heard this, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw, saw Mary quickly rise and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary had come to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Um, and, the, and it's interesting. Uh, the first thing I want you to re- realize is that in 28, she went and called her, her sister Mary saying, the teacher that's the rabbi um the rabbi is here and it's important to note that jesus was her teacher um the rabbis of the day refused to instruct women in fact one of this one of the quotes was that i it would be better for the torah to be burned than to be taught to a woman so this is kind of an interesting thought that um jesus took time and was discipling and teaching these women so Martha goes out to meet Christ. She was the, always the busy one. Mary was quiet. She waited. Then she came, comes out, and where is she again? She's once again, yet again, at Jesus' feet. Oh, to be Mary. Then John eleven thirty three through 37 When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews that had come with her also weeping, <clears throat> And this Greek word weeping is really like weeping and wailing. This is a very loud weeping. Um, He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So Jesus, the Jews said, look how he loved him. But some of them said, could he not have opened, who had opened the eyes of a blind man, have kept this man from dying? Um, so when Jesus saw her weeping, this, this, this wailing, and, and actually um, Barclay writes that um, it was a point of view that the Jewish um, community that the more unrestrained your weeping was giving a greater honor to the dead. So they were really weeping. Um, so this word describes loud wailing. And um, anyway, Jesus... On the other hand, when it says that Jesus wept, it's not the same Greek word. It was quiet weeping what Jesus did. But Jesus does not come um, and observe like a detached observer Mary's weeping and wailing. Um, Jesus comes not as an idle spectator, but like a wrestler preparing for the contest. That's what Calvin writes. Therefore, no wonder he groans again for the violent tyranny of death, which he had to overcome 
and it, and <clears throat> which he has to overcome and it stands before his eyes. He's looking at Lazarus' death and he's seeing what death... See, God never meant for us to die. In the Garden of Eden, there was the tree of life. And we were to live forever in fellowship, in close communion with him. And that's what Adam and Eve did until... Adam and Eve sinned, and then there was there was a separation. Um, but it, but this his weeping and his um, it says right here the verb it translates becoming deeply agitated. Um, it actually means literally a snort of indignation, um, and this is how Jesus really looks at this death, this usurper, this death that never was supposed to have been, that is now hurting his family, the ones he loves. Um, So um, most probably it was the presence of sickness and death and the havoc that wrought, um, that was wrought on the human life that he, that Jesus had this profound emotional reaction. Now I want to talk about this because John makes a point um, because when he's writing in 90-ish AD, um, Gnosticism had come into uh, the church and that basically said that Jesus really wasn't very human. Jesus was just spirit. He was God. And um, so John made a point of talking about Jesus and his humanity. Jesus in John's gospel, he was hungry. He was thirsty. He was tired. Um, and now he's weeping. Um, so I want you to know that um, we have in Jesus um, a God that feels. And um, I think that's a really important thing for us to realize. Uh, we see, Wearsby writes, We see in his tears the tragedy of sin, but also the glory of heaven. Our Lord's weeping reveals the humanity of the Savior. He has entered into all of our experience and knows how we feel. He is indeed a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as Isaiah 53, 3 says. Today he's our merciful and faithful high priest, and we can come to the throne of grace and find all the help we need. Um, That's in Romans 4. I'm sorry, Hebrews 4. Sometimes we say that God might be like above emotions. Um... Because we really can't ascribe to God our base emotions. But God has emotions. God feels. God loves. He's jealous. He hates sin. He gets angry. But his emotions are untainted by our base nature. So sometimes we think he doesn't have them. But God made man and women in his own image. So God, in fact, has a pure counterpoint to our emotions. This is a really neat thought because when we start to see Jesus as our friend and we're going to see that more and more as we get through John, um, we have to realize that he feels and he has compassion and um, he is not some person that's way behind a curtain, not really paying attention to what's going on. He is with us. He said he will never leave us and never forsake us. So. Um, let's keep going. So I, so John eleven thirty eight through 44. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, comes to the tomb. It was a cave and a, stu- a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, says to him, Lord, by this time, there's going to be an odor. For he has been dead four days. 
And Jesus said to him, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes, and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me, and I know, I knew, he knew, I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he said these things, he cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. So you see this beautiful picture right here of Jesus's triumph over sin and uh and death and he calls him he and it, anyway tenny says that the words spoken were brief and direct and imperative and can be paraphrased lazarus come this way out <laughs> and uh trap says it if this voice of christ had been directed to all the dead in that grave they would have all presently ri- risen that's why a lot of it's funny the Puritans made a big deal of that saying that's why he had to say Lazarus because otherwise they would all have jumped out of the grave. Everything Jesus did, let me just say, was due to the power of God and designed for the glory of God. This is what Jesus came to do and this he was our model in this. So this is what we should be doing as well. Everything we should do should be should be doing in the power of God designed for the glory of God. So the effects of this th- um, miracle were threefold as recorded in scripture. Um, it pre- precipitates a series of events which eventually culminate in the passion narrative. Um, the first event effect is many put their faith in Christ. That's verse 45. Um, number two, Pharisees and the chief priests plot to kill him. You can read that in verse 53. And then the third result was that Jesus no longer moved publicly. And that was in verse 54. Now there's three lessons that, um, F.E. Myers writes about this story and they're so beautiful. I'm going to say them briefly. First of all, love permits pain. Um, Wearsby says, God's love is not a pampering love, it's a perfecting love. Um, Anything less than an infinite love would have rushed instantly to the relief of those loved and troubled hearts to stay their grief and to have the luxury of wiping away their tears. Divine love could alone hold back the impetuosity of the Savior's tender-heartedness until the angel of pain had done her work. Um, Let me just say, love, this is the point, permits pain. Um, And I feel like that is a huge parenting lesson for the parents of today. Um, That true love permits pain. Um, And if we jump in too soon and rescue, then the pain hasn't done the work of the lesson. So anyway, the second point of F.B. Meyer's lesson is that God's love sometimes leaves our prayers unanswered and this is what he writes no praying breath is ever spent in vain if you can believe for the blessings you ask they're certainly yours the goods are consigned though not delivered the blessings labeled with your name but not sent 
The vision is yet for an appointed time, and it will come and it will not tarry. The black head may have become white, the bright eye dim. The loving heart impaired with its beating, but the answer will come at length. God will give it at the earliest moment, consistent with the true well-being of the one he loves. Amen. And then the third point is God, love comes at length. And F.B. writes, when he comes, he does more than we asked or thought. He not only raises the sick, but the dead. He makes the darkness of the tomb the background against which to set forth the luster of resurrection glory. He does more than our wildest fantasy could ever imagine. So the application in this I am, I am the resurrection and the life, is that Jesus abolished death, and that's number one, and two, he brought life to life, the certainty that death is not the end. So two things, he abolished death, and he brought to life the idea that death is really not the end. So what does this mean? Number one, it means we should not fear death. Um, John MacArthur writes, but the wonderful truth is that death does not have to be the end of all of man's hopes and dreams. For believers, it should be faced with joyous anticipation instead of anxious fear, because Jesus Christ has conquered death. Death marks the beginning of true life in glorified perfection and perfect fellowship with Christ for those who put their faith in the Lord. Hebrews 2.9 says, But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Hebrews 2.14 and 15 says, Therefore, the children, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Hebrews thirteen five and 6 says, For he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So what so we can confidently say the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? So there's a tremendous freedom that we have in really understanding when Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, that we have nothing to fear, nothing. Because if we happen to die, death is not the end. Um, George Whitfield, he was the famous circuit driver in the 1800s, he um, brought about a great awakening, but he said, we are immortal until our work on earth is done. Um, so the first, what does this mean? The first point is that we should not fear death. And then the second point, and this is a really so important, especially in our society, if death is not the end, then we have to know as believers that our labor is not in vain. Um, 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 55. And first of all, 1 Corinthians 15 is really called the resurrection chapter. It's where Paul is writing to explain all everything about the resurrection. So you should read that. 
Um, but in 51 through 55, he's kind of summarizing it. And he says, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and the mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? In 2 Corinthians 5, um, 9 through 10, Paul writes, So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one of us may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. In 1 Corinthians uh, 3, 11 through 15, it says, No one can lay a foundation other than that which was laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold or silver or precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and when the fire will test the sort of work each one has done and if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives he will receive a reward if anyone's work is burned up he will suffer loss though he himself will be saved as oh as but only as through fire see paul you have to know was like jesus and he saw death kind of it was like opposite day for the rest of the world um we think that once we get all the things we need this is our worldly view um that then i when i've accumulated everything i've had every experience that i want then then it would be time for me to go um but jesus and paul had the opposite um he basically their philosophy was when i have given everything that i could give then it was time to go, um, which kind of echoes Jim Elliot, the famous missionary who um, died on the field. He said he is not a fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Um, and in closing, I want you to um, turn to Second Timothy four six through eight, because this is really, if we want to talk about Jesus being the resurrection and the life. And living in a way so that we're not fearful of death and we anticipate the fact that whatever we do on this earth is going to be judged and there's going to be rewards for that um, because death is really not the end. It's just really the beginning of this next chapter. Um, I want you to read what Paul has to say because it does change the way we live. Um, 2 Timothy 4, 6-8, and this is Paul's swan song. He's just about to be martyred. Um, and he says, for I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. And this is his summary of his life. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but all those who have loved his appearing. 
So in conclusion of this chapter 11, basically the stage has been set for the greatest drama in history. And in the next few chapters, we're going to see man do his worst um, and God would give his best. And that's what's going to be happening. So I, what I want you to do as we close today in preparation for this next, we're going to start the upper room dis- discourse in um, uh, chapter t- 13. And that goes through all the way to 17 is just to be in, in prayer and be in the scriptures and asking Jesus. Because Jesus is about to explain a lot of these things to the disciples. These are his final words. Um, before he goes to the cross. So I want you to realize um, that how important they are and how meaningful they are to us in this day and age. So um, that is my conclusion. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your words are light and life. And uh, Father, we thank you that you are in heaven and you're interceding for us and you live to make intercession for us. And Father, that you're, there's no tomb for you that we can visit where your body is because you have been raised from the dead and you walk in heaven. And Father, that every knee is eventually going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that you are Lord. Father, help us to make our days count because, Father, death is certainly not the end but the beginning. Father, help us to live in a way that makes you proud. Father, so that one day you look at us and say, well done my good and faithful servant. In Jesus' name, amen.